0: If you have your Bible, please turn to uh, 1 Corinthians chapter 1. 1 Corinthians chapter 1. We just started a new series, Real Hope. Real hope. Uh, Is there some need for hope today? Absolutely. There is a huge amount of hope that is needed in our world. And today we're looking at the topic of, of hope in the midst of foolishness. Is there plenty of foolishness in the world? Absolutely. I'll tell you how foolish this world is. Will Ferrell is going to make a, a, uh, a second movie called Anchorman 2 as if Anchorman 1 wasn't bad enough. Plenty of foolishness. I heard a quote he said, uh, th- they asked him in character Ron Burgundy, why would you do that? He says because they, th- the world needs salon quality hair and someone to read the news. That's why he's going to make the, the movie. And I think, well, that's foolishness if I ever heard it. I also read a quote this week, Alice Walker. Alice Walker wrote the book, uh, The The Color Purple. She is a radical feminist. This is her quote. Now, now get this. I don't normally read Alice Walker, but I thought this was interesting. People do not wish to appear foolish, she wrote. To avoid the appearance of foolishness, they are willing to remain actual fools. Interesting for her to write that. To avoid the appearance of foolishness, they are willing to remain actual fools. And I think Alice might want to read what she has written, because she had a granddaughter, that, a grandson that was born December of 2008, and she's never seen her grandson. She's never seen her grandchild. Her daughter wrote recently: "The truth is, I nearly missed out on becoming a mother." Her daughter's Rebecca Walker, thanks to being brought up by rabid feminists who thought motherhood was about the worst thing that could happen to a woman. You see, my mom taught me that children enslave women. I grew up believing that children are are millstones around your neck. The idea that motherhood could make you blissfully happy is a complete fairy tale. This is what her mother taught her. Feminism has much to answer for denigrating men and encouraging women to seek independence, whatever the cost to their families. When Rebecca Walker was 13 years old, she became pregnant. Her mother found out about it, gave her $300 and pointed her down the street and said, you can walk to the abortion clinic by yourself. This is what she wrote. Although I believe that an abortion may have been the right decision for me then, the aftermath haunted me for decades. It ate away at my self-confidence. And until I had Tenzin, that's her son, I was terrified that I'd never be able to have a baby because of of what I had done to the child I had destroyed. For feminists to say that abortion carries no consequences is simply wrong. She has lived out foolishness. And yet Alice Walker and many others in this world believe that we Christians, those of us who believe in Jesus Christ, are the ones who are foolish. They they would consider us foolish. And Psalm 14.1 has an answer to that. Psalm 14.1 says, the fool says in his heart, there is no God. In the midst of our world that that is carrying on with all this foolishness and and spinning their wheels and going through this emptiness that is this life, the Bible points out and says the real fool is the one who says there is no God. Literally what that says is no God for me. No God for me. We're going to look today at the only real hope. The only real hope to cut through the foolishness uh, that we live in is found in Jesus Christ but here's what's crazy he uses the least expected ways to reveal that the least expected way that the, the last thing you could imagine is what Jesus Christ uses to reveal the real hope in us let's let's take a look at that first Corinthians chapter 1 verses 18 through 25 we're gonna look at first at, at the the thought that there is hope in what looks like disastrous defeat there's hope in, in what looks like a d- disastrous horribly negative defeat that, that came to them. First uh, Corinthians chapter 1, starting in verse 18. For the message, logos, that's the, that's the Greek word, the, less, the, the, the verbal word and the written word and the living word, Jesus Christ. For the logos, the message of the cross, is foolishness to those who are perishing. But to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. For it is written, I will destroy the wisdom of the wise. The intelligence of the intelligent I will frustrate. Where is the wise man? Where is the scholar? Where is the philosopher of this age? Has not has not God made foolish the wisdom of the world? For since in the wisdom of God, the world through its wisdom did not know him, God was pleased through the foolishness of what was preached to save those who believe. Jews demand miraculous signs, and, and Greeks look for wisdom. And again, two categories. The Jews are one category. Everybody who's not Jewish is in the other category. That's the, the terminology that is using. So it's not Jews and Greeks, just not two nationalities. It's those who believe like a Jew and everybody else. So the Jews demand miraculous signs, and, and everyone else looks for wisdom. But we preach Christ crucified, a stumbling block to the Jews, and foolishness to Gentiles. But to those whom God has called both Jews and Greeks christ the power of god and the wisdom of god now get this verse for the foolishness of god is wiser than man's wisdom and the weakness of god is stronger than man's strength two things that i see in this as we're looking at this what looked like a disastrous defeat that god has used number one christ's death unleashed god's power and that's what he's saying here he he says christ's death is what unleashed all of god's power on this earth and and you think well wait a second god's power was unleashed at creation absolutely it was god's power is unleashed every day as as the as the earth continues to revolve absolutely it is and yet in some special way when jesus christ died on the cross the power of god to forgive sins the power of god to cleanse us from everything wrong we've ever done the power of god to become real in our life was unleashed on that day. The message of the cross is that Jesus died in my place. Jesus Christ, 2,000 years ago, went to a, a cross because of your sin and because of my sin. Because of everything wrong that we've ever done, everything that we ever will do, Jesus went to the cross and he died in our place. We should have been on the cross. That's the message of the cross. And it doesn't make sense to us. Because when we think about God, we have these, uh, these preconceived ideas about how he acts and interacts with us and how he should do things. No one ever decided before Jesus went to the cross, and, and we were looking in Mark chapter 8 uh, in one of the Sunday school classes, no one could fathom that, that the Messiah, that Jesus Christ, was going to come and die on the cross until he did. Even with Isaiah 53, with, even with all the prophecies, no one looked for Jesus to come to this earth and die as a criminal on a cross. We have preconceived notions. Do you have preconceived notions about things? I, I, I think you could, you, you could do this in, in a variety of ways, but let's just take one of my favorite things food, okay? We have preconceived notions about food, don't we? When I say biscuit, what do you think? Gravy. I heard gravy immediately. Praise God, you've been around Steve Rico way too long. You think biscuits, you think gravy. Do you think flaky or do you think buttermilk? Do you think old-fashioned? Do you think bisquick? Do you think homemade? Do you think uh, Pillsbury Grands? I mean, when you say biscuit, what do you think? What's funny is, is when I think biscuit, I think grits. Because if you have biscuits and you have scrambled eggs and you have grits, there is nothing else you need in life. That is all the food groups right there. Well, if you have bacon, then it's perfect, Okay. It's, it's, we have preconceived notions. When we say certain things, we have this thing that comes to our mind. And when we say God, the cross is not one of those things that pops into our head. It just doesn't, it doesn't naturally follow for us. And there are two groups here. He says, there's one that wants the miracles. They want impressive, irresistible, sensory spectacles of God's power. I I love that. I took that from a commentator. But this is impressive, irresistible, sensory spectacles of God's power there's a group that wants God to, to prove who he is. They want a miracle today. It's not good enough that Peter walked on water. It's not good enough that Lazarus was raised from the dead. It's not a good enough that, that the man in John chapter 9 was healed of his blindness. They want a miracle for themselves. God, prove who you are. And then there's a second group that, that, that doesn't necessarily want that. They, they want rational, irrefutable evidence. They don't necessarily need a miracle, but they want God to spell out everything and and take away all mysteries. They'll only believe when there's nothing left to believe. Because it's all been proven. It's all been laid out. It's all been written out. uh, The whole thing. And Paul says, listen, Jesus Christ became a stumbling block. He became a stumbling block to the Jews, to the people who think that way about miracles. The cross is a stumbling block. You get that? Because crucified and Christ should never be in the same sentence. Crucif- crucifixion was this horrible, horrible death. It, it was reserved for criminals. It was torture. It was, it was hideous. If you've ever seen Mel Gibson's The Passion of the Christ, that didn't go far enough. As horrible as that was, it was so much worse than that. And Jesus Christ did that for us. And, and you can't think of crucifixion and Christ in the same sentence because it's an oxymoron. You know what an oxymoron is, right? It's two things that don't fit in, two thoughts that just don't fit in the same thing. Uh, Some of my favorites: Yogi Berra. No one goes to that restaurant anymore. It's way too crowded. No one goes. It's way too crowded. Okay. I I was applying for a visa to go to India, and the gal on the other side of the on the other end of the phone, she said to me, "I need an original copy of your birth certificate." If it's a copy, it's not original, but anyway. There's this oxymoron, crucified Christ. Deuteronomy 21, 23 says that anyone who's hung on a cross or on a tree is cursed. And so... Anyone who knew the Old Testament, anyone who knew anything about God, anyone who had these preconceived notions of who God is, this became a stumbling block. You couldn't get past this. This isn't just a little pebble in the road. This is a a boulder that blocks the path, and you think, I can't get over this. And on the other side, you have the, the, those who considered it foolishness, that God's Son would die who? For the people who loved him most? No. Romans 5 says that God demonstrated his love for us in this. While we were enemies of God, while we were rebels, while we were shaking our fists, while we hated God, Paul says, Christ died for us. It doesn't make sense. And yet, the Bible tells us that Christ's death on the cross, God sending his son to die for us, unleashed the power of God's love. We would never have understood the depths of God's love without the, 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 the death of Jesus Christ. The depths of his love and the death of Christ come together in John 3.16. For God so loved that he gave his one and only son. God so loved that Jesus died. It it, it just unleashed the power of God's love. It unleashed the resurrection power. We would never have known how powerful God was because Lazarus is one thing and and the the widow's son is one thing, but for Jesus to go and be crucified and be hideously bludgeoned and and then put in the, the grave and then three days later, not someone else speaking words, but he himself through his own power coming back to life, The the resurrection is unleashed because of the death of Jesus Christ. God's very presence is unleashed because of the death. Look at what it says in 2 Corinthians 4.10. Paul will later write to the same church he's writing here. He says, we always carry about in our body, what? The resurrection? No, the death of Christ. So that the life of Jesus may also be revealed in our body in some way god's presence is more real to us because jesus not only became man but died as a man just like we all face death and and we all from the day we're born are are looking at when we're going to die oh we may not think that if you're young today you think well i'll never die i'll give you 20 years if you last that long you know it, we're we're beginning to see that and we live that in our in our bodies Number two, not only does his death unleash God's power, but Christ's death unlocked God's wisdom. There's two groups. We mentioned it before the Jews and the Greeks, but there's also two other groups. There's the perishing and those who are not perishing. There's the perishing and the saved. For the preaching or the message of the cross is foolishness to those who are perishing, but to to us who are being saved, it is the power of God. So, my question to you is which group are you in? Are you in the perishing or are you in the saved? There's not a third group. There's not a, there's not a group in waiting. You're either, you're either perishing or you're saved. And you say, well, I don't like those groupings. It's not my groupings. It's the Bible grouping. My question again is, are you in the, in the group that's perishing? Are you in the group that's saved? And you say, well, I don't really want to deal with that question right now. Well, that's great, but we need to. Because God's wisdom is all in this whole thing. And what we believe determines what group we fall into. Is this foolishness to you? Then you're perishing. Or do you believe Jesus Christ? Then you're saved. You say, well, you you make it so simple, you you need to go through some other logistics. No, really, that's where it comes down. Did Jesus die in your place, or did he not? The, The death of Christ revealed God's modus operandi. And God's mode of operation is this. That he can redeem even the worst suffering. That he can take what seems like disaster and turn it into beauty. He can, he can take those drops of blood and make them be enough to pay for everything wrong that we've done. Philippians 3.10 I mean, Paul could have written so many other things, but he says, I want to know Christ and the power of his resurrection. If we just stop there, that would be great. I want to know Jesus. I want to know all the wonderful things that happened when he rose from the dead. But he goes on, and the fellowship of sharing in his sufferings, becoming like him in his death. Paul writes, I'm crucified with Christ. Nevertheless, I live, yet not I, but Christ lives in me. I'm crucified with Christ. And when we go to the baptismal, when when we have someone that goes under the water, it's a picture of literally you dying and going under the ground and coming back again. And the Lord says, in that death, there's the mode of operation. But there's a huge problem with some people who are preaching today. The people who are name it claim it, they don't they don't want to go to this. They don't want to go to that verse and say that we want to suffer and that we want to be willing to be crucified with Christ. Because name it claim it says that there is no suffering. There, there's, there, you're never going to have a financial problem. You're not going to get sick. You're, you're not going to need money. I wonder if they've cut Hebrews 11, 36 through 38 out of their Bible. You know, Hebrews 11 is that whole deal about, oh, here's the people of faith, and here's Abraham, and here's all of these great these great people of faith and all that they've done in, in their faith, and then you get to, to to verse 36 in chapter 11 and you have people who are cut in two and they're living in caves and they're going hungry and they're beaten and they're tortured and they're and they're they're left out and it appears that God has just forgotten them God says no do you understand my wisdom was unleashed at the cross it was revealed it was unlocked and the philosophy that you'll never have trouble the philosophy that you'll never have to worry the philosophy that you're not going to that you're not going to struggle in this life kills hope it doesn't give hope because what happens if you're Johnny Erickson Tata and you've prayed for 40 years now that God would do something and he doesn't does it mean that you somehow miss God's blessing that you didn't get it right instead johnny said the best thing that ever happened is when i broke my neck and I was paralyzed from the neck down because it brought me to Christ in a way I never would have known him otherwise that becomes how we register everything what we do with Jesus Christ we live as if as if we can outsmart God unless, until we come into the wisdom of God and and he, he gives us some categories he talks about the wise. The foolishness of God is wiser than the wisdom. He talks about the wise. that 's a practical experience. He talks about those who are scholars, they're expert in research. You have people who are experts in the way they live. You have people who are experts at reading other people and, and finding out what they have said. And then the third one is the philosopher. that 's a very rare Greek word, and it literally means debater. it 's the person who debates. And look at the last part of that, and this, and this is the key here. The foolishness of God is wiser than man's wisdom. The best thought that you've ever had doesn't begin to hold a candle to the, the worst thought that Jesus Christ has, that God has. You get that? I, uh, when, when we first got married, we moved to Texas, and in Texas they have all kinds of interesting sayings. And there was a huge Texas-Oklahoma rivalry. Have you ever heard about that in football, little Texas-Oklahoma rivalry? And right before one of the games, one of the people got on, on uh, television, one of the sports announcers, and he was, he was from Texas, and he was denigrating Oklahoma, and he made this statement. He got in real trouble, but I loved it. I, I still thought it was great. He said, if we took 10 of the dumbest people from Texas, the lowest IQ, and we moved them to Oklahoma, it would raise the IQ, uh, average IQ of both states. I don't think that's a nice thing if you're from Oklahoma. Those of you from Oklahoma, I apologize right now. I didn't say it. I just repeated it. The Lord says, the worst idea I've ever had is infinitely higher than the best idea you thought you ever had. And the cross unlocked that wisdom for us. Look at the second part of this. There's hope not only in what looks like a disastrous defeat, but there's hope through those who seem most hopeless. There's hope through those who seem most hopeless. Look at verse 26. Brothers, and I would add sisters there, think of what you, were call, what you were when you were called. Not many of you were wise by human standards. Not many of you were influential. Not many were of noble birth. There's three categories given again. Those who are considered wise, those who are considered influential, those who are considered of noble birth. And, and that literally means you have a good pedigree. You have, you have good ancestors. Uh, Verse 27, but God chose the foolish things of the world to shame the wise. God chose the weak things of the world to shame the strong. He chose the lowly things of this world and the despised things and the things that are not to nullify the things that are. So that no one may boast before him. It is because of him that you are in Christ Jesus who has become for us wisdom from God. So our wisdom is found in Jesus Christ. Look at that that is our righteousness our holiness and our redemption therefore as it is written let him who boasts boast in the lord now as paul is writing this if you're sitting in corinth or if you're sitting in redding california and you hear somebody say look you're not the brightest guy around you're not the sharpest person you're not the most influential you don't have the best pedigree and god's going to use you anyway you might kind of you know, you might kind of puff up a little bit and say, well, I don't really like the way he said that. But think about it. Think about it. What is he saying? And then you have to ask yourself three questions when you really start thinking about this. And here's the first question. Do I choose Christ's wisdom? Do I choose Christ's wisdom? And the wisdom starts with this. How did he choose us? How did God determine who was going to hear the gospel? How did God determine who would have the availability and who would have the ability to come to him? How did God choose that? Did he choose that on money? Did he choose that on economic standard? Did he, did he choose it some other way? Or did, did Christ somehow make plans? Time after time after time, I've talked to missionaries, and they go to some remote part of the world, and they announce themselves in some village, and almost immediately, they have someone come running to them, and I've heard this over and over and over, dozens of times, if not hundreds of times, and they say, oh, we need to go to this village. This woman came, this man came, this child came, and they were looking for someone that God would send with a message for them. And God places in their heart and chooses someone in some remote place where the Bible's never been. And as soon as a missionary comes, this person comes to them and they say, we've been waiting, we've been praying that God would give us the message. And when they tell them about Christ, they immediately come to Jesus Christ. Now you, you tell me how that happens. That's not based on economics. That's not based on where what country they're from. It's based on just something that happened in their heart that God chose them. He says, you're not chosen because you're the wisest, not, not the most powerful. Uh, Dynatai, dunatai, it's the same word used, dynamite. Uh, it's used of God many times. You're, you're not the powerful. You're not the influential. You, you don't have the best ancestors. Eugenesis is the, literally the word there. The, the very best of, of, the, uh, of the ancestors. How many of us pick a team by the worst players? I mean, when you were, you were in school, and they did the, you know, George, you be captain, and, and Fred, you be the other captain. Let's, let's choose these guys up. Oh, you look weak and puny. I want you on my team. Is that what you said? Now you said, man, you're, you're big. You're brawny. You're strong. I've seen you hit the ball. I've seen you catch. I, you're on my team. We pick the best, and the Lord says, I'll take whoever's left. I'll take the ones that, when you look at them, You don't think that they're going to be much he says not many of you are educated not many of you were wealthy well were were there some paul was very well educated he said at the feet of gamaliel nicodemus was a teacher of the law he was the, uh, the pharisee of the pharisees he was a teacher of israel when jesus talked to him and we know later on he he stood strong against the sanhedrin and he came and got the body of christ nicodemus was fantastically wealthy and fantastically uh well-educated. You had people like John Mark. He appeared to also be very educated and and also have uh, some wealth because they went to Mark's home, his his mother-in-law's home, and it was a very well-to-do place. There's Crispus. There's Erastus. Uh, We we saw when we went on this uh, last tour of Israel when we we got to one place, and here's this. Erastus paid for this street. This was a family name. This guy had Buku money. He he was very influential. Stephanus. Christ's plan inverts our way of thinking, generally, generally. Takes a boy's lunch and he feeds 5,000 men, plus their families. He takes and picks disciples, not not from the rabbi school, not from the, the best known, not from the best and the 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 most educated or the wealthiest or the most influential he he picks what he picks a zealot he he picks a tax collector that everybody hated he picks some fishermen that that are just commonplace because there's so many people fishing on the sea of galilee he picked the last people you would imagine for the 12 and he even picked judas as part of his his original 12 it's 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 just completely backward So what we know about God is not what we figured out, it's what he reveals to us. And what he reveals to us is he says, I can use you. It's often the opposite of what we expect. You see, when we start thinking this way, we think, well, if I'm short of funds, I'm not gonna give to the church because if I give to the church, I'm gonna be even more short on funds. And God says in uh, Luke chapter six, Jesus says, given it will be given to you. A good measure pressed down, shaken together and running over will be poured into your lap. For with the measure you use, it will be measured to you. We don't give to get. Don't get me wrong. I'm, I'm not saying that. You don't give so you will get. You give because God has prospered you. And, and who did the Lord point out as the, the one who gave the most? The widow who gave her might. The, the last coin, the, the, the least of the coins that they had, she came and put it in the treasury. And, and he pointed out to the disciples that, that up is down and down is up. And he turns everything upside down. So you're going to choose that. Are you going to live life the way you think you should? Because when you choose that, you, you get righteousness. He talks about the righteousness that we have. Jesus Christ becomes our righteousness. That's not only a right standing before God. When I stand in, in before Jesus Christ, He's not going to say, "Oh, there's George Knight. He's a pastor. You know, he. Well, oh, George Knight. He was a. You know, his dad was a pastor. Oh, George Knight. You know, he, you know, he he preached and he te- You know, he was uh, he was teaching and he was you know playing the guitar. And oh, there's George Knight. You know what He's going to say? There's George Knight. He's covered by the blood of Jesus Christ. You're going to have nothing to do with all that I've done. I've said to Kathy before, at my funeral, I want the song. And when before the throne, I stand in Him complete. Jesus died, my soul is saved. My lips will still repeat. Jesus paid it all. All to Him I owe. Sin had left this crimson stain. He washed it white as snow. Psalm fifty-one, six. David has sinned and he's come back to the Lord. It says, surely you desire truth in the innermost parts. You teach me wisdom in the inmost place. The inmost place, it becomes instinctive when we come to him and we say, Lord, I choose your wisdom. I don't want to live anymore by my wisdom. I choose your wisdom. We have two dogs. We have Bo, the, the little black half poodle, half uh, shih tzu, and we have Buddy that's just a full blown mongrel, but he has a little bit of a Parsons terrier in him. And Buddy is has real weird instincts. Buddy, we have a dog door in our bedroom. And we can let Buddy out the back door to our patio. Beautiful doors. We can leave them open. A lot of mornings we leave the patio doors open and we're sitting there and the cool air is rushing in. And Buddy will go out the patio door and we'll say, okay, Buddy, we're going to close the door. And he'll go around and go through the dog door. The the door's open. We're calling the dog. Come on, Buddy, come in here. And he goes, and then he'll come running around the back. So he's made this big long loop to come into the house. You know what put that instinct into him? I have no idea. If you can figure it out, if you'd let me know, I'd love to know. But somehow, instinctively, he feels like he's not supposed to come in that door. And the Lord says, I want to change the way you think. I want to to give you my wisdom. Number two, do I choose Christ's strength? Because not only is it about the wisdom, but it's also about Christ's strength. Who has God used when we look at the stories in the Bible? David was a 17-year-old boy. He was so small that when Saul puts his armor on him, he says, I can't even walk around with this. Now, we know that Saul was tall for a Jewish man. And David, though, was considered a great warrior. But at 17, he couldn't even wear Saul's armor. And he goes up against a 9-foot giant. You understand that. I can reach to 8 feet because I'm 6 feet tall. That's about 8 feet right there at the, at the very end of my, a guy a foot taller than that. And this 17-year-old boy comes up against him with a javelin, with a, no, with a slingshot. We've talked about this before when we looked at Samson. What did Samson look like? Was he six four? Did he have these huge muscles? I mean, was he, you know, Mr. America, Mr. Universe? Did, did he look like that? I believe that, if so, why were the people so amazed when he did all of the things? I believe when we get to heaven and Samson is going to be there, when we see Samson, he's going to look like Woody Allen. You know, this shrimpy, uh, Woody's not here, right? Okay. Yeah, like that would happen. This little shrimpy Jewish guy that doesn't look like he could do anything. And God used him in a miraculous way. God does miraculous things through the weak. Why should we choose to live without Christ's strength? Why would you begin to live without Christ's strength? He says he chose the weak to shame the strong, not just to make them feel bad about themselves, but the word there, to shame, literally means to bring them to judgment. There's shame like feeling embarrassed. There's shame like, oh, I'm, I'm ashamed of, of how much I weigh or you're ashamed that your head's not bald like mine. You could be ashamed of a lot of things. But that's not what this is talking about. He's literally saying that you're shamed because you're standing in judgment. It's a picture of the defeated army being, being paraded through the city. And they know that when they get to the end of the parade, they're going to be killed. It's the picture of being shamed into judgment. Isaiah 40, 31 says, we have access to this strength. Those who hope in the Lord, real hope, will renew their strength. They will soar on wings like eagles. They will run and not grow weary. They will walk and not be faint. The question again is, do I choose that strength? Could God use cross point? I mean, we're not the biggest church in town. We're not the most powerful church. We're not the most wealthy church. We're, we're not the most influ- influential church. God, could God use Crosspoint in Redding, in Shasta County, in California to do um, amazing things? Could we be the Samson? Could we be the, the David that goes up against the giant? And you say, well, I, you know, I just don't know that pastor. I, and I do believe that he will. From the day that I arrived here as pastor eight and a half years ago... I had visions of what God could do, not what I could do because I can't do it. But I have visions of a, of a gazebo out in this, in this quad area out here that's filled with families. They're waiting for the next service and there's a, there's a coffee service out there and, and they're laughing and they're smiling and they're, they're happy and we're having weddings out there. I've dreamed of, of the what is what we call the bus barn or the maintenance barn down there being used to, to take care of single women, uh, single moms who, who need their oil changed and, and, and need some service on their car and they can't afford it. And, and we've set up a, a station down there where we can do that. And I've I've dreamed of the family center being thrown wide open so that we can do outreaches and and see people come to Jesus Christ. I've dreamed of what God could do with this place. I've dreamed of young families just exploding in this place with families and children and, and all that God wants for us. But I cannot do it. But God says I can do it through you. Through all of us who catch that kind of vision and that kind of dream. We're walking by faith. We're living in grace. We're sharing Christ's love. We're walking by faith. We're living in grace. We're sharing Christ's love. Those are more than just words up on a wall. They become our life. And we get God's wisdom and we get God's strength when we choose it. And here's the last one. Do I choose Christ's freedom? Christ is our redeemer. He buys us back from the slave market. We owe our existence to the prior activity of Jesus Christ, to the prior activity of God. We owe the very fact that we can breathe today to what God did at creation and how he sustains us day by day. But more than that, to the cross. What happened at the cross? Christ's touch makes us clean and pure. Brings us holiness. We can't even fathom that. Christ's sacrifice sets us free. Jeremiah, and and I really think that Paul is echoing Jeremiah 9, uh, 22 and 23. It says, this is what the Lord says. Let not the wise man boast of his wisdom, or the strong man boast of his strength, or the rich man boast of his riches, but let him who boasts boast about this, that he understands and knows me, that I am the Lord who exercises kindness and justice and righteousness on earth. We have two dogs, Bo and Buddy. We have a black dog and a white dog. We always say the black dog is the bad dog and the white dog is the good dog. They love to go for walks. I literally went out to do some work in the yard yesterday, and I walked out to the garage with a pair of socks tucked in my back pocket so they couldn't see them because I can't put on tennis shoes in our house without them coming up and just going crazy wanting to go for a walk. If Dad has on tennis shoes, we must be going for a walk. So I go out to the garage, and Kathy comes out, and she says, where are you? And I said, I'm putting my shoes on out here so the dogs don't maul me because so they, they want to go on a walk. But the bad dog actually can walk on a leash pretty well. The good dog, the white dog, needs a harness because he is a very bad boy on a leash. And if you ever see us walking through the neighborhood, he has got this harness around him so that he doesn't because he is a, an escape expert and he will back out of the leash because his neck is bigger than his head which may say something about his brain but th- that's a whole different story but when I take the harness off of Buddy he always does the same thing you take the harness off and I, and I pet him for just a minute and then he goes oh. and, he, and he shakes all over and it's like i got to get my hair rearranged because I hated being in that harness when we come to Jesus Christ, we have that. But even more than that, both of the dogs that we have, and I'll close with this, are rescue dogs. We were looking for a dog. We lost ours. We had had some really bad experiences with dogs. There was a dog named Sassy that you don't even want to know about. It was a horrible dog. She is a horrible dog, I think. But we found this dog... The, this gal said I have small children this dog is not good with small children that's actually not true but we went to see Buddy and when we got out of the car and this woman got this dog out of the car I could immediately see something was wrong with the dog, the, his hair was falling out he looked pitiful you could feel his ribs and he just, he was cowed he wouldn't approach me as long as I had a black shirt on or if I wore a hat he wouldn't come near me for a year I couldn't wear a black shirt in his presence somebody had beaten that dog somebody had abused that dog somebody and he was so sick we immediately took him to the vet and 300 and some dollars later we had the medicine because he was literally going to die if they didn't take care of the the what had happened to his digestive system we are gluttons for punishment sometime later we decided that buddy needed a brother or a sister so we went to another rescue time and walked into a place we went to see another dog Kathy was looking at that other dog when I saw this little nine pound dog that had been the hair had just been hacked it looked so bad and he was just tiny and he looked up at me and he caught my eye and he and it was just like he said pick me up and I picked up this dog and he smelled bad and he was pitiful and he just curled up in my arms I said to Kathy you can get whatever dog you want this one's mine (laughs) we took the dog to the vet and again terrible intestinal problems terrible sickness the dog would have died the vet said if we'd not gotten the dog and brought him in and Bo has become just this great companion here's the point we're both Bo and Buddy We're dying. We look terrible. We smell terrible. We are terrible. We have bad habits. We're cowed. We've been beaten. We've been abused. We've been neglected. Bo, to this day, years later, when you get food out, he's just desperate for food because he was so hungry. He was so malnourished, even to this day. And we have been that way. And the Lord came to us, and he said, I will rescue you. One day, Jesus saw me. And he caught my eye and I looked up at him and I said, lift me up. And he did. And he fixed what was broken inside and and he's still healing me because there are still things that he needs to work on. But he rescued me. And he did it on the cross. And he'll do it for you. But you have to ask. Would you bow your heads and close your eyes? I want to ask you the question one more time that I asked before. Are you perishing or are you saved? Have you trusted in Jesus Christ or have you rejected him? There's no middle ground. You say, well, I I wouldn't fall into either of those. Yes, you do. If you don't fall into the one where you've trusted Jesus Christ, you can today. You can come and sit on one of these chairs in the front. Someone will come and sit with you and pray with you and tell you what it means to be rescued by the Savior, to be redeemed, to be bought back out of the marketplace father you know the hearts of every person here and even for those of us who have trusted you each day we need to come back and choose your strength and your wisdom and the freedom that comes from living the life you've given us lord i just thank you that real hope comes from those things not from other things and we come to you today father knowing that we were perishing and we have been saved. And Father, if there's someone here today who doesn't know for sure that they won't leave today, Father, until they come and pray and know who they are in Jesus Christ. We pray this in Jesus' name, amen.